John chapter 13. I'm sorry, 14. We finished 13. See, and you thought I was going backwards in the, on the trail. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses again. We'll pray. And then we'll work our way through this passage and seek to glean from it those important truths that the Lord would be speaking to us today. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is God's holy word. Let's ask him for help. Again, Lord, we come before you and we've just prayed through the song, Speak, O Lord. And we do pray that you would give us that heart of faith, that you would give us true humility to receive what you have said, that you would help us in the midst of troublesome times that we either are encountering or will soon encounter, that you would give us trusting hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name. Have you ever experienced a sudden, radical life change? Perhaps coming through the loss of a loved one, or a terrible diagnosis, or the loss of a job, something traumatic happening in your life that your heart begins to be troubled. I remember almost 12 years ago now, a cardiologist looking at me with blood earnest eyes, telling me, speaking of my wife, I don't think she's going to make it through this operation. She was 30 weeks pregnant at the time, and the cardiologist was telling me that death was imminent. All of a sudden, your mind starts racing, you think of life. Without your spouse. Much of life does not consist of these radical life altering changes. But most of the changes take place in small increments in our life. But we need to be prepared to equip for both the small changes and the big large life altering changes. The disciples here in the Gospel of John were about to experience a major life-altering change. Some of the context was that they had devoted the past three and a half years of their life to following Jesus. They had put their personal businesses on hold, fishing businesses, whatever other forms of uh, income they had. They had put much of their family life on hold and had devoted themselves to following Rabbi Jesus for the past three and a half years. And it's in the context of this uh, upper room discourse in chapters 13 through 17 that Jesus drops a kind of a bombshell in their lap and tells them that uh, he's not going to be with them much longer. In fact, he's, he's dropped... 
a handful of different bombs in their lap along the way. One of the things he said to them, remember, was, one of you will betray me. This no doubt put a lump in each of their throats. What do you mean? One of us is a fraud? One of us is not a genuine follower? They would have also seen Jesus himself was troubled in spirit. According to 1321, it says that... uh, When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit. They saw Jesus a little bit unnerved. They hear Jesus telling them that one of them is going to betray him. And they're also told, uh, they've just been told at the end of chapter 13, that Peter, who appears to be something of a leader in their midst, something of a gung-ho, militant kind of guy... We see that unravel in the garden where he starts wielding a sword. I mean, if anybody was true disciple, it would be Peter, right? And Peter and Jesus says to Peter, actually, you are going to betray me before the cock crows. And that's in the midst of a conversation that Jesus had told them that he is going to leave them. So again, try to appreciate something of the context in which the disciples are experiencing this radical life-altering change where they think that they have invested so much of their lives, so much of the past three, of their, their three and a half years of their lives in the Lord Jesus. And it seems to be all unraveling and seems to have been one giant waste of time. And so it's no wonder that their hearts were troubled. And it's in that context that Jesus tells them in 14.1, do not let your heart be troubled. Don't be unnerved by this. Uh, in fact, this word troubled, it's a very graphic word. It's, it's used in, in chapter 5 of the, the waters being troubled. And we, we use that language of, hearts being stirred up. We don't really mean that, you know, somebody's taking a spatula and stirring our heart up. We mean that there's this inward emotional turmoil taking place. There's confusion. There's uncertainty. And with that, there can even be temptations towards fear and anxiety as we think about the uncertain prospects of the future, as we think about life in a radically different way than we are accustomed to. And so it's within this context that Jesus, in such an amazing way, as this loving, good shepherd, he shepherds the hearts of his own disciples. And in doing so, shepherds us. He gives us a glimpse of his glorious character so that in the midst of our own turmoil, in the midst of our stirred hearts, in the midst of our troubled spirits, that we can move from a troubled heart to a trusting heart. And so this morning, I want to give you three grand motivations for you to move from a troubled heart to a trusting heart or from a, I think as we say in the title, from concerned confusion to confident comfort. The first is the the promised place. But before we get to the promised place, 
I want us to look at this imperative that Jesus says. Just as he, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. This is a command. And then he drops two more commands, and they're kind of in staccato fashion, one after another. And I guess one of the challenges, to give you a little window into the original language, is that uh, the, the indicative and the imperative and the, um, as you decline these verbs, it could these verbs can either be taken as an indicative, which means you are believing in God, you are believing in me, uh, or they can be taken as an imperative, believe in God, believe also in me. And that, that difference probably comes up in some of your translations. I think within this context, and I think uh, the gist of what Jesus is saying here is he's giving them an exhortation to believe in God and believe in him. He's giving them a command. In the midst of, of your troubled hearts, I'm telling you, do not let your heart be troubled, but instead, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, we have to pause at this moment and consider how radical this statement actually is. I mean, if I said, believe in God or trust in God and trust also in Matt, you should run, okay? <laughs> Because I would be putting myself on, on, on a kind of equal level of trust that is reserved for God himself. But that's actually what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus can do it because he is God in the flesh. But no mere human can call or command for that kind of trust, that kind of devotion, that kind of allegiance. Also, it's important to note here this idea of believing in God, believing also in me. To believe within this context is clearly more than just mentally acknowledging the existence of someone or something. I mean, of course they knew, they believed Jesus in the sense they believed he existed. He was right in front of them, right? And so he's not saying, believe that I'm a, a real historical figure talking in front of you because you have all these delusions in your head. No. He's saying, trust in me. Trust in me. And, and all relationships are built upon what? Trust, right? Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then he's, he's going to tell them, again, this is our first motivation, why they should trust in him. Because of this promised place. Notice what he says here in verse 2. <clears throat> in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus speaks of this promised place. He calls this place, what? His Father's house. He uses this phrase, Father's house, earlier on in the Gospel of John. Remember in John chapter 2, in the context of the temple and the shenanigans that were going on in the temple, in John 2 and verse 16, he says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house into a place of business. 
Stop making my father's house into a place of business. And he's clearly referring to that, what's commonly called the Herodian temple at this point. This huge temple, which was a, a place in which the Israelites brought their sacrifices, sacrificed on the altar. And so it sh- shouldn't actually be a shocker that Jesus would refer to what is apparently heaven here as his father's house because all you have to do is keep reading to the end of the Bible and you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, and the future heaven is likened to a temple, the father's house. In fact, even the very dimensions of it are a cube, which was uh, uh, the dimensions of the Holy of Holies was a cube, There's so much imagery and language that that points to the future heaven being a kind of a temple, a kind of a dwelling place where God dwells amongst his people. But it's also, in in a very real sense, a kind of uh, endearing phrase, right? It's, It's the father's house. It's daddy's house. And then notice he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Now, if you're reading from the 1611 King James Version, or I think even the New King James may have, in my father's house are many mansions. And I'm sure there's many a prosperity preacher who's unleashed on this text, right? We're going to be in some mansions. But that's not really the idea. I think the New American Standard gets it right with dwelling places. There's, there's, there's many dwelling places. And I think what the idea is here is that uh, not so much speaking of the uh, elaborateness, the, the mansions, the plush dwelling of it. But there's plenty of space there for you. There's a spot there for you. There, there will not be any no vacancy sign, you know, blinking out front. Sorry, you know, all the spots are taken. You know, it's, it's like the, the, the uh, SGC retreat. Sorry, you got to go to the basement, you know, or sleep in your car. Um, no spots left. No, no, there, there's plenty of rooms there's, there's, there's always an open room. You have your spot there. It's locked in. It is interesting. One of the early church teachers, Irenaeus, says of this, John 14, 2, is a promise of future mansions. Those who had performed the greatest works would have the largest mansions. Those who produce fruits 100-fold would live in the heavens and those who produce 60-fold in paradise, and those who produce only 30-fold, well, they live in the city. See, people are still trying to get out of the city, (laughs) according to Irenaeus in eternity future. That's probably not the right reading of the text. But it's just the idea that, that, that the Father's house has room for all of God's people to come there. That you, you have a place in the home. And then notice what Jesus says here in verse 2. I love this. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. <laughs> if it wasn't true, I would have told you. And In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not blowing smoke here. I'm not... 
I'm not deluding you. I'm not trying to trick you. This is not a game where you, you invest the past three and a half years of your life and then you find out in eternity future, whoa, it was, a, it was all a trick. You know, Jesus actually isn't the way to heaven. Sorry about that, you know. Get to the back of the line. No, nothing like that. I've said this before, but I loathe rebates. Not that I don't like getting money off, but I, I loathe the whole concept because there's all these kinds of this fine print and these hoops that you have to jump through and it seems so difficult. And then, you, you know, you, know you, 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 do, you think you've done everything correctly and then you get something in the mail that, you know, you forgot to fill out this. And so, I'm sorry, time has expired. You don't get your rebate. It, it, it seems like one big trick, Right? It's not that way with Jesus. Jesus says, in my house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I'm telling you the truth here. The promise is real. Jesus is assuring them that none would be cast out of his house. And keep in mind, these are disciples who, in the very near future... They were going to be ostracized. According to John chapter 9, remember the blind man? He was, he was put out of the synagogue, which meant, you know, uh, you, you really economic difficulty. You're outside. You're, they wouldn't buy or trade with you. They froze your GoFundMe account. But Jesus is saying, no, actually, you won't be an outcast. There is a home for you in heaven. There is a resting place. There is a place of refuge. There is security there. A.W. Pink on this passage says, Sad it is that in the present evil age, one of the most precious words in the English language has lost much of its fragrance. Our fathers used to sing There is no place like home. Today, the average home is a little more than a boarding house, a place to eat and sleep. But home used to mean and still means to a few the place where we are loved, the place where we are always welcome, the place where we can retire from the strife of the world and enjoy rest and peace, a place where loved ones are together. Such will heaven be. Believers are now in a strange country, yea, in an enemy's land. And in life, in the life to come, they will be at home. At home. Now, while it is true that some people, their home life can be difficult, it can be a place of strife, conflict, ongoing tensions. I am blessed that when I come home, I'm usually greeted by hugs by people who are like two feet tall, two and a half feet tall. Daddy's home. There's excitement in the air. There's the embrace of my spouse. It's a warm place to be. 
doesn't matter what kinds of difficulties I may have encountered throughout the day. I can come home and be accepted and embraced. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples here. Your hearts are troubled. There's all kinds of turmoil in this fallen world. I'm leaving you. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to encounter horrible trials. But I'm telling you, there is a home that awaits you. There are dwelling places. There's no shortage of rooms. There's a spot for you that's promised for you. Your heart can believe and trust in me. You can have comfortable confidence in the midst of this fallen world because you have a home waiting for you. Friends, is that a confidence that you have? Friend, if you really believe that, no matter what you're going through, no matter what kind of anxiety-ridden temptations you are encountering, you can have hope of a home if you are trusting in Jesus. Notice that's, that's kind of the preamble is believe in God, trust in God, and trust also in me. You have to trust in Jesus. And I would say there's probably a correlation between our anxieties and fears and being dominated by sinful fear and whether we are trusting in a promise like this. Well, that's the promised place. Secondly, there's also a promised preparation. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am there you may be also. Notice this word prepare that's repeatedly. I go and prepare a place place for you. What is Jesus talking about here? One of my favorite contemporary Christian singers, not really contemporary, he's been dead for many years, but Keith Green, if you ever get a chance to listen to some Keith Green, wonderful music, but when that boy starts preaching, he need to turn the volume down. One of the things he says in, in between one of his amazing songs and amazing voice, he says something to the effect of you know, God created this world in six days. And if he's, he's gone to prepare a place for us, he's been gone for thousands of years. How much better will heaven be because he's been taking thousands of years to build heaven? I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. <laughs> Keith, stick to singing, buddy. <laughs> I can't wait to meet him in heaven and tell him that. I don't think that's what Jesus... What does he mean by preparation here? What does he mean by, I go and prepare a place for you? Well, what has he just been saying? He's been telling his disciples, he's going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Well, what is part of that going? Part of that going is what he's about to do the very next morning. Namely, die on a Roman cross. Namely, three days later, rise from the dead bodily. His preparation that he's going for, his preparation that he's doing, 
to make sure that we have a place prepared for us is his death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, what is required for you and I to be fit for heaven, for us to be qualified, for us to have a room reserved for us, is somebody has to pay the price. Somebody has to make preparations. And it's no wonder in verse 6, which Lord willing we'll get to next week, that Jesus would make this statement when the question comes to how are you going to get to this place? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father through me, but through me. Nobody gets to this place. Nobody gets to the Father's house apart from these preparations that I'm making. I am the way. I am how you get there. You have to trust in me. This is actually good news, friends, because this means that your your dwelling place, your hotel room in heaven, your spot has been paid for and prepared by King Jesus himself. And so it's guaranteed not because of your performance, not how good you are, not how well you've behaved, because we know it hasn't been that good, but it's based upon his promise And friends, again, this is hugely important because, again, the context and whatever radical life changes you may encounter, whether it's a a, a horrifying prognosis or diagnosis or whether it's a spouse leaving you or a spouse dying or a a, a parent dying or, or whatever it might be or losing a job or persecution that's on the horizon, whatever it might be, that Jesus is has prepared a place for you. And it's guaranteed because it's been paid for by him. This gives you hope and confidence to go through whatever it is, to not only survive the trial, but to thrive in the midst of the trial. I think J.C. Ryle is right when he says he has prepared it, that is this place, by procuring a right for every sinner who believes to enter in. None can stop us and say we have no business there. He has prepared it by going before us as our head and representative and taking possession of it for all the members of his mystical body. As our forerunner, he has marched in, leading captivity captive. He has planted his banner in the land of glory. He has prepared it by carrying our names with him as high priest into the Holy of Holies and making angels ready to receive us. That's good. That'll preach. I've been blessed over the years to have been hosted by many different people, whether it was traveling overseas or traveling in California. And usually when you're hosted by somebody, you know, they, they may say something. We 
like we have a room prepared for you. And, and you think about it, like they've, they've made all the preparations, right? They've washed the sheets, you hope. <laughs> they've cleaned the room. They've got a spot. They've got a bed for you. They've got a place for you. They've done it all. There's a very real sense in which all you have to do is, is trust that it's true, you know? Believe their promise. Believe what they've said. Believe that, you know, you're really not going to be sleeping on the curb next, or in the backyard next to Lucky in the doghouse. You have to trust. Friend, you have to trust Jesus' words. If you don't trust, you, you'll never go in the room. You'll never have the place. But also, if you have to put off a kind of defiant, autonomous unbelief. Vodi Bauckham, in one of his messages, he, he talks about how when he was young, he used to play a game when him and a friend or somebody else was in the car, they'd be driving along. It was called That's My House Game. That's what they named You know, that's what you do when you got enough, when you don't have iPads and phones, and that's what you do. You make up games in the backseat of the car. My house. So they, you know, they'd be driving along, and they, you know, one, one of the persons in the backseat sees a really nice house. That's my house. And then the job of the next person was to wait for the next house that's bigger, better, more beautiful. And then they would say, that's my house. And, and you just kind of keep claiming those houses. But the real, reality is that wasn't their house, right? <laughs> I mean, imagine, you know, car pulls over, you knock on the door. That's my house. Get out. Or you commit a little B and E, you break in the back door. You got to strong arm the person. What, what's the problem? Jesus says, "What this is? I go to prepare a place for you. Where it's it's my Father's house. It ain't your house, okay? And the reality is, is that a lot of people think, yeah, I'm going to heaven. That's my house. Well, it ain't your house." Okay? It's not your house. But there is an invitation. There is a welcome. If you come into the house through the Lord Jesus, there is a place for you. But it's not your house. You don't decide. It's not on your terms. And so, friend, if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, I, I know I'm going to heaven because I'm just going to believe that. You're merely playing the game of my house. And saying it doesn't make it so. And so instead, lean into the promise of Jesus. Because he does have a house that's real. It's his father's house with many dwelling places. And he's made the preparations. He's died and risen from the dead. If you but trust in him and his saving work. So this, this, my friends, this is going to take you from confusion, troubled heart, to a trusting heart. 
when you bank on the reality that my eternity is secure in Jesus, you don't have to be anxious about your circumstance. You don't have to be frazzled. You can trust. My eternity is secure. However long this may last, the preparations have been made. I have a dwelling place waiting for me. So we've seen the promised place, the promised preparation. Now, thirdly, the promised presence. <clears throat> Notice what Jesus says here. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is so good. Jesus promises this preparation, but also promises to come back from this preparation with this glorious promise so that wherever Jesus is, those he's come back for also are. But there is a kind of imagery here. I don't know if you picked up on it, and we probably don't pick up on it because we haven't never been to a first century wedding <laughs> there's no cookie tables in the first century but what you did have and let me just read a section here from a commentary in Jesus' day the Jewish marriage custom required that the groom go to the bride's father establish a price for gaining the bride now, already you ladies are offended by that, you know, wondering how much I would have cost, how much daddy would sell me away for. <laughs> so there would be a, a dowry price that would be established. And then the father and the future husband sealed the covenant with a cup shared between them. The groom would then leave for a lengthy period. Usually this was the, the kind of the betrothal period. And it was during this period, usually it lasted about a year in which he would prepare the future dwelling place of the bride and the groom, their future house. And then without announcement, when everything was finally ready and the wedding feast was prepared, he would leave this prepared place and he would walk through the streets of the town and receive the bride and take her home. We, we can get that imagery, right? Even if the, the, with the parable, Matthew 25, the parable, the, the ten virgins. Remember, there was five of them were foolish, five of them were wise, and five of them who were ready when the groom came, and five who weren't. That's kind of that point where the, the groom comes back, and he's, he's ready to take the bride with him, and then he takes her home, and then the feast begins. And so all this imagery, I think, is the backdrop here. I mean, it's already in, in John chapter 1, Jesus alludes to himself as the bridegroom. Remember, John the Baptist was the friend of the groom. And so when Jesus is talking about coming back, it's the imagery of the, the heavenly groomsman coming back to claim his bride so that they can be with one another forever. It's this beautiful imagery, this beautiful picture of the coming of Christ and this promised presence to be with his bride, the church, forever. 
Similar language we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Our young people are actually memorizing this verse this week. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The blood-bought people who are already dead, they rise, they ascend. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Oh, and they are words of comfort. That King Jesus will come back for his bride. He will come back for his own. He will come back with, a, with an eye of love for his own blood-bought people to claim them and take them home. And according to Revelation 19, there's a marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a wedding feast. What this teaches us that indeed it is one of the, the main attraction of heaven is Jesus himself. He is what makes heaven so glorious, his promised presence to be with his people. So that where I am, there you may be also. What an amazing promise to be with Jesus bodily forever and ever and ever, world without end. The English Puritan John Owen says, a sense of God's presence and love is sufficient to rebuke all anxiety and fears. And not only so, but to give in the midst of them solid consolation and joy. Solid consolation and joy. <clears throat> this is such a beautiful promise because we are, in a very real sense, strangers in a strange land. We've not yet made it home. This is not our world as we know it. John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress captures this, right? There's a journey. He's called a pilgrim. On a journey, he's leaving the city of destruction. And he's making his way to the celestial city. And there's always all these dangers Toils and fears all along the way. But he's looking with an eye towards heavenly glory. He meets a cast of characters along the way, some good, some evil. His travels take him through many difficult places. And he is never at home until the day he reaches the celestial city. Why? Because he was a pilgrim. 
on a journey. Friend, do you live your life as if this was your eternal residence? As if this was your eternal home? Now, I do believe that God will resurrect this earth. And so future heaven will be much like this world, but it's not this world. It's a world that has been purged of evil, sin, and suffering. And we need to rid ourselves of the notion of that this is our eternal home, as it were. I've never been one to do much camping. But could you imagine somebody going camping, putting a refrigerator in the back of their truck, couches, all manner of things that normally we would consider, that's not camping, that's moving. (laughs) And yet, so often I think we live our lives like that. Only with the view to the here and now. But we need to keep our eyes heavenward, looking towards heaven. J.C. Ryle says, heaven is a place where Christ himself will be present. He will not be content to dwell without his people. Where I am, there you shall be also. We need to think that we shall, uh, we need not think that we shall be alone and neglected. Our Savior, our elder brother, our Redeemer who loved us and gave himself for us shall be in the midst of us forever. What we shall see and whom we shall see in heaven we cannot fully conceive yet while we are here in the body. But one thing is certain, we shall see Christ. We shall see him. We shall be with him. Friend, this should give you some hope, some peace in the midst of whatever trouble you are encountering should have given these disciples hope and peace and trust and confidence in Jesus in the midst of their impending trial. And for the Christian, it's not a matter of if you will suffer in this life, if you will encounter trials, it's, it's a matter of when. And if you haven't, just live a little bit longer and you will. Just live a little bit longer and you will. But these words of the living Christ can be a sweet pillow for you to lay your head on in the midst of it. A medicine for your soul in the midst of the trouble. Jonathan Edwards, colonial pastor, theologian, speaking of God in heaven, he says, he is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death. 
and which they will rise, which they are to arise to at the end. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints. And the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy angels. They will enjoy one another. Edwards doesn't say this, but they'll enjoy food. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels, in each other, or in anything whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what they have seen of God in it or in them. Edwards is talking about a world where there will be no competition between the creation and the creator. But every enjoyment of the creation will be what a glorious and beautiful prism by which we will worship the true and living God, the creator of the universe. You see, that's one of the great sobering, sad realities in this world. There's so many wonderful things to enjoy, even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the darkness. There are lots of wonderful things to enjoy in this world. And sadly and tragically, we wind up fixing our affection and love and ultimate devotion upon the stuff rather than the giver of the stuff. But in the world to come, there will be no competition. There will be no idolatry. God will be our all in all, and we will be able to enjoy the creation and properly worship the Creator. But that world is not yet. You've read the story of Cinderella. She had to live with a wicked stepmother and stepsisters. But when she went to the ball, she met a prince. And even though she had to go back to her hard existence for a little while... Her life was never the same because she knew her prince didn't forget her. And he came one day and took her away to his castle to be his bride. Even while you are ironing clothes, scrubbing floors, encountering trials and suffering in this life, you can know that the prince is coming back and he will claim you for all eternity. Let's pray.